Welcome to the Celtic Way podcast, where we look to bring a fresh vision of spiritual life by nurturing a vibrant, evolving, and sustainable life with God in nature. Celtic spirituality is an ancient tradition of seeing God in everyone and in everything. This week on the show, we have international spiritual teacher and retreat leader and award-winning author, David Cole. So I live in the New Forest, uh, the north of the New Forest in uh, Hampshire, just outside of Salisbury, my closest city. New Forest is 152 square miles of national parkland. David, I've been looking forward to this for quite a while now, and I'm enjoying your books. And we want to introduce you to our listeners. So David, share with us a little bit about your journey, if you would. So my journey into Celtic Christian spirituality is kind of my whole life journey, really. And my whole life now is kind of oriented around this and the contemplative mystic tradition. So I grew up in a family that went to a church. It was pretty fundamental. My childhood was at the kind of mid 70s, early 80s. It was a church that used to be a brethren church back in the 50s and 60s and was trying to struggle out a new generation. We're trying to make it a free evangelical conservative church, which, to be honest, I couldn't tell a lot of difference in their theology. The main difference, it seemed to me as a child, was that the women just didn't wear hats in the new version. I wasn't overly enthralled by the Christianity that I was presented with. Mm. There certainly wasn't any great sense of spirituality in that. And I always had a sense of something greater. You know, I was brought up, like I said, through the 70s and 80s, which was possibly the, the the pinnacle of the era of science fiction and fantasy films you know you go through the 80s particularly I really had a sense that there was definitely something bigger this wasn't just made up stories so the church wasn't really feeding that in me so by the time I was in my teenage years going through our secondary school your high school I'd kind of left uh, at least mentally and emotionally left the church hadn't quite built up the courage to tell my parents this so still went along the church seeing that I was struggling with with it thought they should give me a job and, and that would keep me in so I was given the job of recording the sermons but mostly I was just listening to the radio I wasn't actually listening to the sermons I was just checking that the microphones didn't squeak <laughs> and mostly listen to the radio so by the time I was in my kind of mid-teens I'd really properly left church and wanted to discover spirituality in other places mm. didn't want to go into any other organized religion because I'd just come out of a very structured organized Christianity fell into friendship groups of people that turned out to be kind of pagan uh, and on the Wiccan persuasion. So spent most of my mid to late teenage years hanging out with them, going on ghost hunts, experiencing spirituality. What resonated with me most was the ancient pagan path, uh, kind of the Iron Age pagan path with a Druid, so Celtic spirituality from a pagan perspective. So that's really where I sort of hung my hat at that time spiritually and uh, part of that journey was was about connecting with the supernatural realms which I was doing on a fairly regular basis and one particular instance I was doing this I had what was up until that moment the most uh, significant and and obvious spiritual experience that I've ever had using terminology that I now understand that I didn't understand then I, I was having a, a mystical experience very deep and I encountered this uh, incredible supernatural being, this spiritual being, which was the purpose of what I was trying to engage with. But it became very apparent to my inner being very quickly that this was actually the cosmic Christ 
that I was encountering, not the Jesus that I'd been introduced to via flannel graph in the 1970s as a child, this kind of historical figure that we're supposed to emulate, but something much bigger and much more transcendent. And this caused a little bit of a battle, an argument within myself uh, of my brain going, yeah, but we've rejected Christianity. Do you not remember your childhood? And the rest of my inner being kind of just going, yeah, but that just happened. We just met the cosmic Christ. Being open-minded and open-hearted as then as hopefully I am now still, my heart went out and uh, you know, I realized that perhaps it was just that version of the Christian faith that I'd been presented with uh, didn't resonate with me. And actually there was no doubt that this was the most significant spiritual experience I'd ever had. And, and the, the various things that, that I heard, for want of a better phrase, in that spiritual experience drew me to know that my spiritual journey had to be Christocentric now. So you were 19 or 20 when this happened. Yeah, so. yeah. No, it's just and turning 20. Did you have a Christian experience when you were younger in the more conservative Christian tradition? Uh, no, no, I didn't really have any experience. No. no, I just, it was all very cognitive. You know, the church that I went to, it felt like they believed in the Holy Spirit a bit begrudgingly because the Holy Spirit was in the Bible and they believed in the Bible more than anything. A bit of a phrase that goes with that stream of church, their Holy Trinity is the, the Father, the Son and the Holy Bible. Um, you know there's no great sense of spirituality in the style of church that i was brought up with um which probably isn't quite as as prevalent as it was back then i think it's amazing that at age 19 or 20 you could really accept and enter into trusting your lived experience with the cosmic christ that's Mm. that's mind-blowing for me right now that's just and and actually that that experience was the only thing that kept me on a christocentric path for the next decade i uh came across this picture from the book of kells and it, it suddenly dawned on me i suddenly was given this realization that there was a christocentric version of Celtic spirituality. And this spirituality that I had really resonated with me um, in my pagan years, the only thing really that I'd ever, I'd really ever connected with spiritually, that there was this, this Christ-centered version of it. So I then started to try and look for uh, books and teachings on Celtic Christianity. So this was early 2000s, maybe late 1990s, early 2000s. And back in those days, there was pretty much nothing and I found in this back corner of this shop, top shelf, tucked away behind a bigger book, this book called Exploring Celtic Spirituality by Ray Simpson. And I read that and I thought, ah, oh, something in a Christian bookshop on this Celtic stuff. It's, I'll read it, see what it's like. And that was the first time really in my life that I'd ever encountered anything other than that mystical experience of Christianity that resonated with me. Um, so that was my journey. And, and you know, for the last 20 years, I still haven't really connected fully with mainstream church ever. Would you like me to share a bit about the the community that I belong to? Yes, please. My life generally is just this series of accidents that happen, like finding that book in the back of a bookshop. I was given the opportunity by the last youth work organization that I worked for. They gave their workers opportunity to have a spiritual retreat. So I thought I would use that opportunity to go and visit one of these Celtic islands. Um, And of course, you know, being in the UK, it's very easy to 
to just pop over to one of these ancient <laughs> Celtic sites, you know. Right. And uh, so I, I started to communicate via email with the Iona community. Just as I was at the place of booking a room, I realized that I wasn't actually talking to Iona anymore on email. For the last two or three emails, I was actually talking to the Anglican Diocesan Retreat Center on Lindisfarne. I emailed them and said, I'm not supposed to be talking to you. How come I'm talking to you? I was emailing the Iona community. No one could really explain it. I'm not really quite sure. I replied to Iona and then I got a reply back from Lindisfarne. So I had a small moment of going, oh, I wanted to go to Iona. But then I thought, well, you know, Lindisfarne is one of these Celtic islanders as well. It was the cradle of the Celtic mission to the Angles and North Angles. It's about a day less travel in each direction. So I'll get two extra days on the island. So yeah, I'll go there. I'll go there. So unintentionally, I end up on Lindisfarne. So I, I, I came out from the, the uh, Marygate house one evening, uh, walked around the corner, thought I'd go and do some evening prayer by myself on the beach. I walked past this signpost that said, we do night prayer here at nine o'clock. So I thought that'd be nice. That would end the time. It was about half past seven. So I thought I'd go and sit on the beach for an hour, meditate, uh, listen to the seals and the birds and stuff, be in the peace and the quiet, come back for night prayer, go back to bed. Uh, so that's what I did. Uh, I went down to the beach and came back for night prayer, or at least that's what I thought I did. Actually, what I'd done is spend about two hours on the beach instead of an hour. So there I was rattling on the, the chapel door and it being locked, thinking that I was coming back for night prayer. And then there was a, a group of people inside the retreat center where they were doing this night prayer. And uh, they invited me in. They said, what are you doing? I said, I've come for night prayer. They said, it's a bit late. It's quarter to 10. Night prayer was at nine o'clock. So they invited me to have a cup of tea. I sat down to have a cup of tea. They were just kind of sitting in a circle and around in the sitting room. They started to introduce themselves and directly opposite me said, hello, my name's Ray Simpson and I'm a founding member of the community that runs this retreat center. And a couple of people on and my brain suddenly went, hang on a minute. He wrote that book, you know, that moment of paradigm shift in your entire spiritual journey. Oh. There's the author sitting over there. <laughs> so accidentally, I was late for night prayer. And coincidentally, there was a group in there. And coincidentally, Ray was sitting there as well. So uh, I, I asked Ray if I could go around and see him the next day in his house. He lived on Lindisfarne. Uh, and uh, did that, spent the afternoon sitting there talking to him about my journey and how I was trying to live and how I was trying to kind of structure my life around the readings that I'd had and, and, and done about the Celtic saints. And he says to me, David, he says, you're basically living out our community rule. Uh, why don't I show you our community rule? And he showed it to me. And it was, again, it was a bit like his book. The community rule was, was almost you know, a written version of what I just said I was trying to live. So I said, that's amazing. And you've, you're the, here is a group of people with the same heart that, that I have in this, this Christian journey. Can I join your community? And he said, no, you can't join the community. Uh, he said, you have to go home and pray about it for a couple of months first. I'm not going to let you join yet. Um, so, so that's what I had to do. But you know, you're joining a monastic community, uh, no, you know, a new monastic one at like that. But you know, you, you got to go home. You can't rush these things. So that's what I did. Went home, uh, prayed over it for a couple of months. The, the, I tried to be as objective as possible, but really in my head, there was no doubt that you know God had led me to this place. So I joined. This coming August will be 18 years ago. Traditionally, a monastic community is when you take on their habit and join the community. You take on a monastic name as well. I've written all my books so far under David Cole. That's obviously my, my given name. But I've taken on uh, the name Brother Cassian after John Cassian. 
who was a, a fourth, fifth century monk and a teacher. And he's kind of uh, the one that really brought the desert monasticism, the Eastern tradition of desert monasticism into the West. Uh, if there was one person historically who was the biggest influence on uh, the um, foundation and, and growth of Celtic monasticism, it would be John Cassian. I'm looking at some of your books. I can tell that the flavor of the Eastern Church really resonates with you. Thank Single you. out for me one thing that comes from the East that really resonates with you experientially. That's different than the Western Church, let's say. For me, you see, a lot of the stuff that I was discovering in the Western Church that mm -hmm. resonated with me, like the, the mystic tradition and the contemplative and the connection with creation that's particularly within Celtic Christianity, or it's expressed mm -hmm. particularly within Celtic Christianity, the idea of monasticism in a, a way that balanced the individual as well as the community is all in Western spirituality, but it all is a little bit underground. And, and all the people that have been a part of those movements have basically been classed as heretics at some point in their life. And what I discovered is that in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, all of these things are mainstream right. uh, pillars that, that found their faith. Yeah. They never had the doctrine of original sin that was brought in by Augustine of Hippo into the Latin church. So they've never had this problem that, that the Western church have that comes and stems from the original sin. They, they've always had this idea of creation being godly and sacred, apart from the excessively overbearing patriarchy. Yeah, all the stuff that I've discovered that resonates with me through the Western journey, you know, discovering the, the mystics mm. of the Middle Ages. And I love the use of icons and I love chants and, and things like that as well. So. And of course, that's in Western Christianity as well. So, Brother Cassian, I have been browsing through the Celtic Lent 40 Days of Devotion to Easter, and I'm going to be part of a group on Sunday mornings that's going to use your book as going to be our, our guide through the Lenten journey, and I really, really appreciate it. So talk to me about this book. It's very good. It's really good. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I've written three 40-day uh, devotionals based on the Celtic tradition, because in the Celtic monastic tradition, we understand they had three periods of Lent in the year. Mm -hmm. The 6th century historian Gildas speaks of them. He calls them the three forties. We understand they had the 40 days leading up to Easter, which we still celebrate here. They had a 40-day period of Advent, and then they had 40 days in the summer, as well. And the sources that I read tend to suggest that the, this 40 days in the summer followed Pentecost Sunday. There's lots of uh, threes in, in Celtic spirituality, lots of triads. So there was three periods of 40 days. Uh, and of course, if you add three 40s together, it's 120, which is one third of the year. So one third of the year was given over to some form of Lent for 40 days where they, they took these things very seriously and gave up all the goodness and, and the pleasurable aspects of life to deliberately focus on, on God. The first book was the Celtic Saints book, which originally was called 40 Days with Celtic Saints, but then it changed to just Celtic Saints when the Lenten Advent book came out, so it matched the three. Today it happens to be St. Bridget's Day, and so you can go to my Celtic Saints book and look up the day on Bridget and do a meditation on Bridget, or you can follow it 40 days following Pentecost, so being inspired by the, 
the people of our past following Pentecost, the birth of the church. But the Lent book, really, I was, I was looking at uh, some of the stories of the Celtic saints. Um, but of course, my Celtic saints book was just about the stories of the Celtic saints. So there's a few bits in, in Celtic Lent where there's the stories of the saints, but really I wanted to look at some other aspects of Celtic monasticism and Celtic Christianity, as we call it today, that would help us in our journey towards Easter. Uh, so there's a couple of things in particular that I, I spent some time on. One was uh, an Anglo-Saxon uh, epic poem called The Dream of the Rood, Rood being an old English word for cross. So The Dream of the Rood is a fascinating piece of literature. It's the story of the passion of the Christ and the crucifixion of Christ, but it's told from the perspective of the cross itself. So the, the idea of imagination and storytelling was uh, a huge part of Celtic culture, both Christian and non-Christian, pre-Christian. And so this idea of telling the story of something and using their imagination was just normal practice for them. But The Dream of the Rood is written in the epic hero saga style, very typical of the Celts and Anglo-Saxons and even the, the, the Danes and the Vikings. And so it doesn't have the, the weak falling down Jesus that we might be used to if we've watched you know, Robert Powell on Jesus of Nazareth or something. It has uh, the story from a very spiritual perspective. So, so Jesus is presented as a, as a warrior king who comes to the cross as a battleground. And he comes ready for battle. So he strides up to the cross boldly and clasps hold of the cross. This is the way it depicts the nailing to the cross, that, that Christ clasped the cross and hugged it to this battleground. And so it's very, very different. We have a very dramatic, very powerful version of Christ. Now, of course, we understand that back in those days, the main thrust of the story or, or the meaning of the cross wasn't the substitutionary atonement theology that we have now in our mainstream it was the christus victor theology that you know it went on the back of bible verses uh, like i think it's one john that says you know the reason that christ came to earth was to defeat the works of satan that's the reason of the cross and, uh, and another place i think is it colossians where it says he, you know christ made a mockery of the work of satan through the cross and that sort of thing now, the christus victor theology was the seemed to be the main understanding which of course you know you're, you're dealing with warrior nations you're dealing with the celts in ireland you're dealing with the uh, the angles and the saxons uh, in britain uh, and the, the the remnants of the british uh, in wales and cornwall uh, so these were nations that uh, were used to being at war um, and so this was normal life to them so to present the the kind of substitutionary atonement theology which which only really became popular in christianity in around the 12th century through archbishop anselm it probably wouldn't have worked quite so well but to present christ as a king and we his thanes we his his dedicated servants or knights that would fit much better with the culture but obviously they were on what i call uh, warrior peacemakers and this idea that, that despite the fact that it's being presented, a Christ is being presented as this warrior king, and we are being presented as the kind of the warrior horde around him, it's a very spiritual-based context. They are a very pacifist kind of people, the Christians, uh, in a physical sense. But in a spiritual sense, they were very fierce in their, uh, their understanding. So I focus a week on that in, in the Celtic Lent. And then uh, we also have access as a primary source to an 8th century Irish uh, Eucharist liturgy, uh, which is known as a Stowe Missal, um, because it was kept for a long period of time uh, in a place called Stowe in England. 
So it's called the Stowe Missal, but but it's an old eighth century Irish text, and it basically just you know it's a liturgy from uh, that period uh, in Ireland of the Eucharist, and it's just I think it's just beautiful. Uh, when they broke the bread, they created a Celtic cross on the plate out of the bits of bread. Uh, and I think there's one of the days there's a picture of, of that in there. Um, the chalices they used were quite large. And so they would dip the whole loaf of bread in the chalice of wine beforehand. Um, so they'd break it in half and then they'd physically hold it back together, dip it in the chalice and then break it up into bits. And then when they gave the, the wine out from this chalice, they circled everybody's head with the chalice and prayed a blessing over them. Really? So this was a this was a long beautifully drawn out affair the, the eucharist it wasn't just kind of a quick let's trip up to the altar one pew at a time it was a beautiful service and ceremony very very sacred so yeah i share a bit of that too so. it's quite a rich invitation into this 40-day trek to easter and i'm looking forward to it very very much is there a concluding section that you want to get to brother cassian is there something you want to leave us with as we approach Easter, uh, one of the, the great things that we discover in, in Celtic Christianity is this idea that because they didn't have the theology of original sin like the Eastern Orthodox Church don't, they had this understanding that the core of our humanness is uh, divine, the divine image that we are each created in. And then the work of the cross was a restoration of, of who we truly are, our true mm-hmm. self and our false self. So it was a restoration and there's a, a story uh, an illustration that one of the Celtic theologians uh, used. Inner self, is, he said, it's like a, a loving community that's working in harmony with itself and with each other. And, and sin is like an occupying army that's come in and it's dominated and it's imposing its structure, it's imposing its rule, it's imposing its taxes, it's punishing people for not being part of what they're doing or not doing it right or enough. And the work of the cross is like someone riding through and driving out the occupying army and restoring the community back to its harmonious, loving self. It's a real core aspect of Celtic theology. I might just leave you with uh, one of the prayers from the Celtic Lent book. Almighty Creator, intimate friend, loving Father, restorer of all that I am, I pledge to work with you to restore the beautiful being which you created beginning with the declaration that I am wonderful, as quoted in Psalm 139. I say this not because of ego, but because the scriptures say that you made me so. I am one of your works, and that your works are wonderful. Thank you. May my restoration begin with my belief in myself. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Celtic Way podcast. If you'd like to order any of David's books, you can find a direct link in the show notes of this episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe, give it an honest rating and a review. This is the best way to get the podcast in front of as many people as possible. 
visit our website at CelticWay.org and subscribe to our updates. While you're there, please consider becoming a sustainable donor so that the message of Celtic Way can continue to influence the world today. Also, like us on Facebook at Celtic Way Colorado.